Good morning, everyone. I am glad to see you all here this morning. We are shifting today. We have been doing two books, Exodus and Leviticus, and now we are shifting into Numbers. And for the last seven weeks of the class, we'll be doing Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really just the very last lesson because so much of Numbers and Deuteronomy overlap with each other. They tell similar narrative stories. And so just a word, the commentary that we have been using so far this school year is now over. And there's another for Numbers and Deuteronomy. If you are interested, I know it's only seven weeks of class, so don't feel any pressure to do so. But if you're interested, the name of the commentary has been in Bub's reminder emails, and there are two copies left in our bookshop in case you are interested in picking one up. Not necessary, but if you like reading ahead or like getting another perspective as we go, then it's the same author of the Exodus and Leviticus commentary just for Numbers and Deuteronomy for these last seven weeks. Can you believe only seven weeks left? I know, how sad. Um, but just a quick note, last week, was the only week off. So we will continue through the rest of this semester until the first Wednesday of May, and that does include Holy Week. So on Wednesday of Holy Week, we will have a study. So no more breaks. Every week until the first week of May, we are together. And if you do not have a bookmark schedule, then that is also in Bud's reminder email, and you can pick up a physical copy today on your way out. So today we are shifting into numbers, a different kind of storytelling for the Israelite people, and a reminder that stmichael.org slash rbs, Rector's Bible Study, is where you can find all of the old lessons, and it's where you can sign up for our newsletter and just keep up with all the different things we are doing, including the podcast, so you can go and listen to those lessons. And I just heard that one of you had recommended to a Jewish friend to listen to the lesson I did, I guess, a couple weeks ago on Jewish holidays, and he officially gave me a thumbs up that I did it right. So that, that is very, that's very good. I'm always nervous about doing other traditions holidays. Um, so I would say, feel free to recommend to your Jewish friends, because apparently they think it's okay too. All right, let's open with a prayer, and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together, and we ask that you open us up. I ask that you put down all of the things that cause us stress and anxiety, those things that worry us, especially out in the world. Help us to put those things down, that we can help make space inside of us, that you can fill us with your presence and your spirit, that over this next hour, we can focus on the work that you have done through your people in time so that we can be inspired today to be your chosen people in the world to help bring about your kingdom here on earth. Be with our friends who need your healing touch, those who cannot be with us today, and those around the world who are hurting and in need of your care. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we are shifting into numbers. And so we have three sections of today's study. The first is the arc of numbers, the whole book itself. Just a quick summary so we know where we're going. Then the two parts of today's lesson, the first five chapters of Numbers, will be the first census and the role of the Levites. And so we're going to start with the actual arc of the book of Numbers itself. So we're going to begin with Numbers as a name. So where does that come from? And it's relatively simple. There are two different censuses taken of the Israelite people in the arc of this story. 
And so tradition holds that we simply count, call it numbers because we are counting the people. And that happens twice. And we'll deal with the first census in section two of today's lesson. As I noted earlier, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the last two books of the Torah, are telling similar stories. In a sense, Exodus tells the story of the exit from Egypt to where the people come to Mount Sinai. Leviticus talks about the way in which people worship. It's that holiness code, how people are going to relate to God over time, the use of the temple, and all of those things. Numbers and Deuteronomy essentially tell the story of the people after they leave Mount Sinai and when they're on the verge of entering the promised land. So remember, this whole thing is to fulfill the promise made to Abraham about receiving specific land. That promised land is the land of Canaan. Canaan is already occupied by other people. And so the Israelites have to come out of Egypt, go through the wilderness where they become Jewish, and then ultimately take the promised land. That's the big arc. The real conquering of the promised land does not happen until the book of Joshua. So the Torah, the five books of Moses, tell the story of how God created the world, makes the promise to Abraham, how the Israelites find themselves in Egypt, their exit out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, and then right on the verge of entering the promised land. That's what those first five books do. Numbers and Deuteronomy as the books four and five essentially tell two versions of the same story. And that is from Mount Sinai into the promised land. That's one of the reasons why I chose to focus on numbers and not really Deuteronomy. We have one last lesson this year where I'll essentially highlight some of the things that are unique to Deuteronomy that are not found in numbers. But for these next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the story of the Israelites going from Mount Sinai and then wandering the wilderness. And so there's the big arc of numbers. Ha ha ha. Let's do a quick summary of what happens in Numbers so we know along the way what we're going to be looking for. So as we noted, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. They're receiving the law. They're becoming Jewish. And so now they leave Mount Sinai and they move toward the Promised Land. So geographically speaking, if you can imagine the kind of Egypt into Sinai and into Israel, they are at Sinai. That's that upside-down triangle-shaped space between Egypt and Israel and Saudi Arabia, really. They're there in Sinai, and they're going to ultimately be wandering up through Saudi Arabia and into Jordan to approach Israel from the east. Does that all make sense? Yes, I don't have my markers, so we're just going to go with that. As they go through the wilderness, and by wilderness what we essentially mean is the desert. This is not a hospitable place. They wander Wander is a little odd word for that. They essentially travel through what is today the Sinai Peninsula that belongs to Egypt, the lower half of Israel, which is the Negev, it's the desert, up into what is now northern Saudi Arabia and southern Jordan, so that they go up to where the Dead Sea is. Jericho is just north of the Dead Sea. And ultimately, the Israelites will enter the Promised Land across the Jordan River, and their first big moment will be at the city of Jericho. Once the Israelites reach the Jordan River, which is essentially the division between Jordan and Israel, they will have a choice to make. They send 12 spies into Canaan 
to figure out, do a little recon, right? Like who's there? What do they look like? How should we conquer the space? And 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, we cannot do this. They are too big. It's filled with giants. Two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, they come back and they report that the land is gorgeous and abundant and flowing with milk and honey. They are the only ones that seem to believe that God will deliver them into the promised land. And so for that, they actually get to go into the promised land. The other 10 went out and the Israelites are afraid they don't want to go. And then God gets mad and God says, you should be faithful to me. Look at what I did for you in Egypt. Why can I not do this for you? And so sends them back out into the wilderness for 40 years so that the entire older population dies off. And those not responsible for the faithlessness rise up to be in charge. And then Joshua leads them into the promised land with those who did not die in the wilderness. And we will see that Miriam and Aaron both die in the wilderness and Moses makes a small mistake that has large repercussions. He also is unable to go into the promised land. And so essentially everyone except Joshua and Caleb of that older generation dies in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. That's the basic arc of numbers. So I know that was kind of big, you know, skipping across the river, so to speak. Any questions for clarity about the big arc of numbers before we get into the specifics? Yeah, so the question is, are, are the 40 years symbolic? And so, yes, we've been doing this long enough to know that there are holy numbers in Scripture. 3, 7, 40, well, 3, 7, 12, 40, those are holy numbers. Whenever you hear those numbers, it is very unlikely that it is meant to be specific or technical. It is most likely that those numbers are meant to reflect a holiness about the work that is done. And so 40 years is actually, you know, technically speaking, if you imagine all of the adults that are kind of alive in a generation without it being, you know, right now we live much longer than they would have back then. But say, you know, an average age, people lived into their 60s, maybe at that point. 40 years is actually kind of the amount of time you would need for essentially all the adults alive at that point to die off and those who were too young to be responsible for the bad choice to age into being the adults responsible for the community. So yes, my answer to you is yes. I think 40 years is not meant to be technical, but it's also probably a decent amount of time that you would need for the adults to die off. So I don't want to say it wasn't 40 years, but 40 is definitely a convenient number and is likely meant to communicate something sacred or holy. In a sense, the Israelites would have been cleansed of their faithlessness. So here they are, they make the wrong choice. And in order for the Israelites to be ready to go into the promised land, there needs to be a cleansing. And so that 40 years where the adults essentially die in the wilderness is the macro communal cleansing that then brings them to the promised land. Remember, these are stories. They are really not meant to be specific history. Now, are they historic in some way? Sure they are. 
But we need to not get too wrapped up in the specifics and instead go a little bit deeper into the meaning, the moral of those stories. And so 40 is simply a nice holy number. Other questions or thoughts about the arc of all of that? All right then, let's jump in then to numbers. Open up chapter one. We're going to read two portions of chapter one, but I'm gonna jump, and so I'll tell you when I jump. So here we go, Numbers chapter one, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of the whole congregation of Israelites in their clans by ancestral houses according to the number of names every male individually from 20 years old and upward everyone in Israel able to go to war now jump to verse 45 verse 45 so the whole number of the Israelites by their ancestral houses from 20 years old and upward, everyone able to go to war in Israel, their whole number was 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered by their ancestral tribe along with them. We'll pause there. So essentially what we have here in this first chapter is a census is taken. How many people are there? And they base this census on men 20 years old and up who are able to go to war. So these are men who are able to fight. And by saying able to go to war, that means if there's any infirmities, including age, and they are unable to go to war, they are not counted. So 603,550 Israelites were found to be fit for military service. So if you extrapolate that out, you're talking about two to three million people in total. This is a gigantic number. And so what I want to start by saying, that's not really possible. Um, that number is not a real number. I mean, that would be more than the population of Egypt at that time. That would be more than the population. Palestine itself, which is today Israel, does not reach that population until the 20th century. So there is essentially no possible way there were two to three million people out in the wilderness. And so what then is that number actually meant to say? We could say that number in a two ways. We could understand that number in a couple different ways. The first is the word for thousand can actually mean family. And so by saying there were 603,000, it might actually mean that there were 603 families. And if that's the case, then we're talking about a reasonable number of people out there in the wilderness. It could also mean that the 603,000 is intended to connect the Jewish people, those Israelites, over generations. And so essentially what I mean is the people who came before, the people who come after, including the people reading the text themselves, are connected in the work of the Israelite people, of the Jewish people over generations well beyond those who are literally alive at that moment. And that's sort of a nice poetic sense. The people who are reading this now, the Jewish people who have inherited this call to live out in a specific way, they are connected to those who were both faithful and unfaithful all the way back to the very beginning. I tend to think that you're talking about a linguistic difference here 
where it's really 603 families. No problem. That's still a lot of people. So if you think 603 families and you've got, what, five to 10 people in every family, then you're still talking about thousands of people. It's not a small group, but two to three million, just not possible. We also should note that this first census is really about preparing to fight. It is very clear that at this point in time, the Israelites need to prepare for war. It's kind of important for us to note that up to this point in time, they've not had to fight. I mean, fighting has not been part of their reality. They were imprisoned, enslaved in Egypt. The plagues brought them out of Egypt. Even when Pharaoh's army went to chase them down, they were not called on to fight. They were delivered through the Red Sea by God, and it was God who essentially fought on their behalf. So there is a material shift here about their reality and their experience that they are preparing to make. And that is that they are now going to fight for who they want to be and where they are to live. That might seem totally normal, but if we think about God's promise, God up to this point has, or the way the story has been told, God has actually delivered on the promises. And the people have, in a sense, received what God has given. Now the people are going to be much more responsible for fulfilling God's promise. They've got to go fight. God's not just handing things to them. And so what they do is going to be much different now than what has been in the past. Questions about that before we continue on in some of the census details? I'm thinking we're going to have to put out like a bowl of cough drops here in the next few weeks. I was going to say, we just got back from the Holy Land and we took four PCR tests within like 13 days as part of the trip. So I promise you, I really, really don't have COVID. Like I am, I am for sure the one in this room that does not, that's for sure. Um, so any questions about what we said so far? All right, now we're going to talk then about the way that divisions are made within the Israelite people. There are three clear divisions that are being made through this census, and that is clan, kin, and households. Clans, and I'm specifically not using the word tribe because tribe tends to kind of imply separation, and we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, that's fine, but tribe to me, uh, means divisions that I don't really think are there. These are still, it's really one big family of Jews and so of Israelites. And so to use tribe is, implies a little bit something different. Instead, we're going to use clan. Each clan is based on one of Jacob's 12 sons. And so as the census goes, there are 12 clans within the big umbrella of Israelite. One of those clans are the Levites. We're going to talk about the identity of the Levites in the third section of today's lesson. But each clan, based on one of Jacob's 12 sons, is divided into kin groups. And those kin groups are essentially kind of how you unify yourself with grandparents or great-grandparents. You can talk about six or ten generations back, but you don't necessarily live that out. I mean, most large families anchor themselves in three to four generations, not 
10 to 15 generations. And so when you have a big family reunion, usually you've got what, like a grandparents and then children and then children's children. So you've got first cousins or so, maybe first cousins once removed, but that's about as far out as you go. That's essentially what a what a kin group is when the Israelites begin to form themselves. Kin groups go back a couple generations, that's it. So these are the people you would have known and you would have likely shared life with. Maybe you're all shepherds together, or you're all carpenters together, or you're all tent makers together, whatever that is. It's, there's something shared that is only within that smaller group, not the entire clan. A clan could be hundreds if not thousands of people. A kin group would be a bit more like up to a hundred or so people. Then you have a household. A household is what it sounds like. You're essentially talking about parents, children, maybe baby grandchildren, but that's about it. So a household would be more like 10 to 20 people. And so essentially what Israel is doing is giving themselves some very formal structure. Each of the clans, the tribes, each of the clans are going to be responsible for certain things. And we'll see specifically how the clan of the Levites will be responsible for the work of the temple and worship. Households, though, will essentially move together. And remember, too, that this is, they are moving here. This is not just a specific place and time this is shifting all over the wilderness. So you've got your tent, your herds, your tools, your whatever. You have to get up and move these things over and over and over again. So creating unity within clans, kin, and households will help simply with the logistics of relocation over and over and over again. All right, questions or thoughts on that? We have to do this part. Sorry, I know it's, it's a bunch of technical stuff. We don't have a lot of sexy stories here in Numbers. Okay, yes, please. Yeah, so the Levites are not counted in the census because the census is about counting people who will be fit for battle. The Levites are taken out. They, their job is something holy, sacred stuff. It's the priestly group. And so the priests will not fight. And the priests will come from the clan of the Levites. So essentially, I guess I should note, even though we've all heard this many times at this point, this is being written way after the events it describes. So although there are plenty of well-intentioned people who will go to the mat to argue that Moses wrote this stuff, I am telling you right now, Moses did not write this stuff. And so we can you know, debate that later if you want to, but I will win. I'm just letting you know. Um, and so essentially what happens is all this stuff happens. They go through the wilderness, people die off, they go into the promised land, they develop the judges and the kingdoms, and then the kings mess up, and then they go into exile in Babylon, and that's when they write this stuff. They already know what's going to happen. When you are telling the historic nature of a story, think about if we were to ask you 
to tell the story of the creation of America, but you live now. You will absolutely tell that story in a very specific way because you know how it ends. Well, I don't want to say ends, but you know where it comes after 250 plus years. And so you've got three to 400 years of history that you will tell when you know the result. And so part of what happens when you tell the story that you know is you tell the story in a particular way to get to a particular end. So you're not going to tell a story such that maybe this thing or that thing will happen. You kind of know what's going to happen. So the story is going to be told from the leaning of the winners, right? History is written by the victor. That's kind of what we're doing here is the people who won or in the case of the exile lost are telling the story from a particular, from a particular lens. Even more than that, not every Israelite clan is going to contribute equally to the writing of this story. So think about who of the clans will be most likely able to write the priests. So you're talking about people who are shepherds. They're not literate. They're not going to be able to read, let alone write. And so when we get to the point where this stuff is being written, who's writing it? The priests are writing it. Now, we know how that works out based on the Reformation. When the priests are the only ones who can read and write, and they're the only ones who can interpret, and they're the only ones who tell everyone what God says and who God is and what God wants you to do, doesn't always work out so well. Our tradition as Episcopalians, our Anglican identity, is rooted in the fundamental idea that the people need to be connected to their own faith. So when the English people wrote the Book of Common Prayer, their intention was you who speak English should be able to read and pray in English so you actually know what you're doing. That was revolutionary. Think back to the people writing numbers, the people writing the entire Torah. They are the priests. And so they're going to write a story that preferences them. And I don't even think that they're being intentionally malicious. They're not looking to dupe everyone else. They're just human and they're self-centered. Everybody writes a story that makes them sound good. And so you've got the priests able to do the writing. They're going to tell the history and they're going to make themselves to be very important because they think they're very important. They think what they're doing is important. And so of course they're going to tell the story. We're not hearing a whole lot about how you raise sheep. The shepherds are not writing this. We're hearing an excessive amount about how you care for the temple and how you pray and how you sacrifice and all of the other things to the point where those of us here who are like, it's the middle of the week and we're sitting in a church doing a Bible study. We care about this stuff. We don't even care about all of that. And so the priests and Lord knows if y'all have known priests, they can get so bogged down in the details. I don't know if I've said this to you all in here, but when I first came to St. Michael, the altar guild, so fantastic here at St. Michael. I know many, some of you are in the altar guild. Um, they would ask me all these preferential things. Would I like the silver here or there? And I would say, whatever you want. 
Would I like the linens here or there? And I would say, whatever you want. And finally, they're like, do you actually care about any of this? I said, no. Um, and they had never worked with anyone like that because priests tend to really want the linens here and folded and the silver and the things. And I promise you, Jesus doesn't care. But it is important to do it well. And so for me, it's about do it however, but do it well. And so does it matter if it's here or there? Not at all. It just matters that you care because it's in the caring that your own faithfulness deepens. And so put your keys by the back door or the front door, it doesn't matter. Put them in the same place, right? Polish the silver in the same way, put it in the same place. All of that is great, but it doesn't matter if it's on the second or the third shelf. Just choose, that's all right, and then stick with it. That's really the most important thing. And essentially here, we are seeing the priests writing their story. And so they are going so deep into the details, so much more than most of the Israelites would have ever cared to know, because it is who they are, and it is what they see as being their responsibility to God and to one another as the Jewish people. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about the Levites here in a minute. Other thoughts or questions? And you can ask whatever. No? Chicken. Okay, here we go. Section three. We're going to jump to chapter three. And we're going to read two sections. So I will tell you when I jump again. Chapter three, verse one. Now we're talking about the Levites. Here we go. This is the lineage of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nabab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Edomar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to minister as priests. Nabab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unholy fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. Eleazar and Edomar served as priests in the lifetime of their father, Aaron. Now jump to verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I hereby accept the Levites from among the Israelites as substitutes for all the firstborn that opened the womb among the Israelites. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both human and animal. They shall be mine. Let's stop there. We're going to talk for the rest of the time about the Levites and kind of their role because they take up a lot of space in numbers. First off, as I noted earlier, there is a lot for these people to do. So we cannot underestimate how difficult it is to live in the wilderness with a huge number of people. They can't order Amazon delivery to Mount Sinai. They've got to figure it all out. So just water alone is a huge challenge. Forget food. Food then becomes a challenge. How about housing and shelter? It is a massive undertaking to imagine thousands and thousands of people out in the wilderness. There are no just nice running streams all over the place. There aren't deer hopping through the forest. This is hard. 
And they're going to have to work very hard, very strategically to make sure that they take care of themselves. Now, we know that God is providing the manna and all of that stuff, yes. But it doesn't mean that the Israelites are not responsible for actually making sure everything works. The whole manna idea, although nice, is something that we should not take so literally. In a sense, the manna, I certainly understand that the manna can be a way to express that God took care of all of their needs. Was there literally flakes of stuff on things every morning? Maybe. That would be great. I don't also need for that to have been historic because to me, what that can also communicate is they had everything they needed. Good. But having everything they needed took a lot of work. And so in this nation, this identity forming, there's a huge amount of work to do. So every clan needed to take care of some stuff. You had to be specific about everyone's job responsibilities. And so the Levites take the responsibility of being the ones who maintain the tent, who maintain the tabernacle, who will then ultimately maintain the temple. So remember when this is written, the first temple was built and destroyed. That's when this is written. And so the Levites are explaining why they cared so much about the temple. Also remember, remember? We haven't done this yet in here. Well, we kind of did in Daniel when we did Daniel. Um, when the Assyrians and then the Babylonians took the Jews into exile, they didn't take everyone. They took the elite. They took the governors and the priests and the teachers and the craftsmen. They didn't take everybody. They couldn't sustain that entire population. Essentially, they decapitated the Jewish nation. So all the people responsible for leadership in some way, they were taken. The 90% who were sort of just living, they stayed. And so you've got the priestly class in exile because they were part of the intellectualism, the intellectual elites that kind of ran the show. And so they're able to sit down and consider and reflect and write new stuff. And that's what's happening here is they're trying to figure out how they went wrong. And so all of the attention paid here to their responsibilities is essentially a restart. So they're sitting in exile and they're saying, what did we do wrong? They figured out what they did wrong and now they're restarting and they want to make sure they do it right. And so rather than saying, we have decided how to do it right, they go way back and they say, actually, God meant for this to be the case from the very beginning. And we messed up and we got off track. Now we're going to get back on track. But it's not just because we have decided to do it that way. It's because God meant for us to be doing it that way the entire time. Does that make sense? Okay. Why the Levites? The Levites have, as the story goes, established themselves as being highly faithful to God. Now, I have noted that the Levites are the ones writing the story. So they can write the story about how special and unique they are because that makes them feel good. Fine. But let's remember how they've told that story. Back in Exodus 32, you don't need to turn to it, but in Exodus 32, 
Moses comes off Mount Sinai to find the people going crazy around the golden calf. And then this is what happens. When Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them run wild to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 people fell that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. The Levites have, the Levites, sorry, have, from the very beginning, differentiated themselves as being faithful to God first, even at the expense of their own family. And so, as the story goes, they are now officially, formally separated from the rest of the clans to be faithful to God. They will care for all the sacred stuff on behalf of the people. Now, I hope you noticed in verse, uh, verses 11 through 13 that essentially the Levites are the substitute sacrifice firstborn of the people. So up to this point, we know especially in Leviticus, how to make sacrifices, that kind of first fruit sacrifice, the best young lamb or dove or grain offering or whatever that is. Everyone's meant to give their first fruits to God, but it doesn't stop with just the animals. It is meant for the humans too. And so how God sets this up is that the Levites as an entire clan represent the first fruits giving and sacrifice to God that God will then keep forever and ever. So there is no human sacrifice in the sense of actually killing people, but there is human sacrifice in the way of giving ourselves over our lives to God in a very particular way. And the Levites do that on behalf of the entire Israelite nation. That sounds very special. And the Levites will, through these stories, set themselves up to be incredibly important. We don't, I mean, today, it's hard for us to really imagine what the priestly class means to the societal structure. I can equate it to, we all know medieval history, and a king's firstborn son will become king. What happens to the king's secondborn son? He becomes bishop. And that's the way it happened for hundreds of years. So if we think of it that way, the priests, in a sense, are very, very powerful. We, of course, know in the Gospels that the priests are incredibly powerful, and Jesus speaks against the priests over and over and over again. Today, priests, pastors, ordained people don't carry that same sort of authority. So we have to take ourselves out of kind of modernity, that 20th, 21st century kind of structure, and put ourselves in a more ancient structure where the priestly class would have been incredibly important and powerful to understand how the Levites would have 
set themselves up for a whole lot of, of that kind of power and authority. All right, questions? <coughs> I caught your cough. All right, lastly, let's look at the Levitical structure. If we go back to Levi as one of the sons of Jacob, Levi had three sons, Gershon, Koat, and Merari. That's not important for you to know. It's just that there are three. And those three sons define the... Uh, what's the best way to put this? Those three sons define the three different familial lines within the Levitical priestly structure. Aaron comes from the line of Koath. And as we will see in Numbers, it is really Aaron's descendants that are most responsible to be the priests of the temple. So even though we say that the Levites are the priestly class, essentially what the Levites do is take care of the entire worship life, not just priests. It's really Aaron's line from Kohath that become the priests. The other two become the people who do the other stuff in the temple. And remember the physicality of traveling through the wilderness. Remember back in Leviticus, we learned, or Exodus and Leviticus, we learned what the Ark of the Covenant is, how to build the tent, how big things are. It's huge. That thing has to move in the wilderness with the people. So the Levites not only have to move their own households, so their own tents and tools and foodstuffs and animals and all the other things, they've got to move the tent and the tabernacle. And so they have to have a bit of specific help. So that means not all will be priests. Some will be what amounts to, say, sextons. And so people who care for the sacred space are still separated from the rest of the Jewish people, the rest of the Israelites, but may not be the actual priests in the temple. They may be the people who care for the temple stuff, who move the temple stuff, who clean up the temple stuff. Still separate, but not exactly separate in the same way as the descendants of Aaron. All right, questions or thoughts on that? I'm actually kind of done. I know. Usually I have far too much information to fill. Um, but you all have been particularly quiet today. So not had to ask any specific questions, yes. Shifting from uh, the priests uh -huh. to the military organization that was very, very sophisticated, by the way. Um, one thing occurred to me, and that is, as they're clubbing and fetching all the way across the valley, are they running into hostile people that yeah. then allow them to develop <clears throat> Thing that you don't 
don't just come off being a cheap burger to do. Yeah, so Howard makes an interesting observation that if we look at what the Israelites will actually do in conquering the Promised Land, it is a highly skilled um, endeavor. So the people who are already in the land of Canaan, they're not nobodies. They conquered that land at some point too. They have defended that land from other groups too. And so what the Israelites ultimately do is significant. One thing we will see in some of Numbers, we're not going to look at every instance of this, but as they move around in the wilderness, they do encounter other peoples. And they do find that they have to, in a sense, fight those other tribes for resources. So especially in the wilderness, things like water is so important. And so any little spot with a spring is going to be controlled by someone because that water is critical. Before they actually get to the point where they go into conquer Canaan, they will have fought many times. Could that have developed their identity as a fighting peoples? Sure. But let's, I guess, be honest here. You're talking about slaves out of Egypt. They would not have been skilled fighters. Now, they would have been strong. So I do want to differentiate. They would have been working manual labor in Egypt. So pure strength they would have had. But skilled fighting is very different than being just strong. So they had the size and the strength. So could they have developed skilled fighting? Sure. But as they're wandering around in the wilderness, to develop sophistication that they will ultimately show in conquering Canaan is a very tall order. And we don't get much of an indication as to how that happens they sort of all of a sudden become... Now, the way that the stories are told is always about God's deliverance, right? So if you remember back, we may do this. I don't know if we're going to do this. Not next. Um, but if you read Joshua, which is actually a very good story, so that reads much more easily than Numbers. Um, Joshua essentially, you know, they cross the Jordan River, they go to Jericho, and they walk around the city walls, and they blow the trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. And we all know that song from, you know, Sunday school. So... It is not potentially the kind of highly skilled engagement that we might perceive it to be. That's not how the story is told. Now, I cannot believe that it really happened like that. I mean, if we need that, then fine. Um, and in fact, if you have any young children in your life, um, the VeggieTales version of Joshua attacking Jericho is the best. Um, the people in Jericho are the French peas, and so they are <laughs> mocking the Israelites from on top of the wall in a French accent, and it's fantastic. Um, and so it makes for a good story, but we have to acknowledge that the Israelites would have had to truly fight in order to claim the Promised Land. Once we get into Joshua and beyond, the battles are highly violent. Um, it's, it's a massacre. Um, I mean, I hate to call it genocide, but it, it is. I mean, the technical term for this is genocide. And so they go and they kill thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Where do they develop that capacity? We don't really know. 
It's not part of the story, which is one of the reasons why we can pretty confidently say this was written much later than the events, because if you think about what was really having to happen in the wilderness, making tools, making weapons, training the fighting force, that's all left out. That would have occupied the majority of the majority of the Israelites' time. And we hear virtually none of it. But that's because they're not the ones writing the story. The priests are writing the story. And so the priests are talking about, you know, where they put the tent curtain. Um, and they're not really focused on the making of the spears and the training of the infantry and all of the other things that would have happened. Yeah, so the question, the comment about numbers making the Israelites look like, you know, Russian aggression in Ukraine right now, it is complicated. This came up almost every single day in my Holy Land pilgrimage, um, because so much of what you do in the Holy Land is you reflect on the issue of Jews and Palestinians. Um, it is so complicated to talk about whose land belongs to who. We, our concept of land ownership in America is actually quite simple. There was a whole group of people who lived on this land before the Europeans showed up and the Europeans pushed them off their land set them into reservations to keep them from unifying to be able to defend themselves. Now it belongs to us. That's the story for us. It's actually quite simple. Now we can absolutely say, does the land belong to us now or does it belong to the Native Americans? At some point, it's the people who live there. And that's the brilliance of, here we go into politics, that's the brilliance of Israeli settlements in the West Bank and other places, is while land is disputed, you go and you settle on it. And then you fast forward 50, 60 years, and now you've got three generations of Israelis who have lived on that land. Well, so yes, the Palestinians remember living on that land, but now the, this family, it's the only land they've ever known. Now you've got children and grandchildren who were born and raised on that land, and yes, the Palestinians are saying it belonged to us, but they can't even, like basically no one who used to live on that land is living anymore. And so does it really belong to them or does it belong to the people who are living there? It's completely a mess. And that's Palestinians and Jews. I mean, you go back this far and you're talking about thousands of years of peoples. Someone had this land, someone else had that land. They came and they conquered, they took over and they moved people around and who knows? I mean, you can have layer upon layer upon layer of who owns the land. And so then many of the pilgrims um, I was just with were saying, it would be so nice if we could just kind of start from now, like kind of stop and say, let's just go from now. And everyone has what they have. Well, that sounds great for an American to say, because we have what we want. If you're in a position where you don't have what you want, starting from now is that will not be perceived as fair. And so you look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, and I highly commend 
a, an NPR podcast called Throughline. There is an episode from maybe two weeks ago about Ukrainian history and identity, and it is so helpful. It's like 30 minutes, it's incredibly lucid, and it explains how the Ukrainians are not Russian. And I had no idea about all of this. Um, they are very different people. And the whole, idea, the whole identity of what had become the USSR was completely modern. And so when you look at Russia going into the Ukraine right now, the Ukrainians are defending themselves from a people that they do not identify with. And Russia's claim on that land is something extremely new. His, historically, that land was not Russian. And the people were not Russian. And even though they have a lot of familial overlapping with cousins or whomever in one or the other country, they're different. And so when we look at the conquest of the Israelites into the Promised Land, we cannot ignore what is technically happening here. They are taking someone's land away. And interestingly, it was never theirs. So it's not as if they're coming back to get what had been theirs before they went to e Egypt. It was never theirs. Abraham moved, and Abraham lived out in the desert. He never lived in what was Canaan. And so for us, we should at least ask the question and struggle with the idea that they're coming to take land away from a people who live there. It was never theirs, but God promised it to them. I mean, okay. Um, I think that part of, and this is, oh, I'll get in trouble for this, but um, 20th century, when you look at the real politic of the 20th century and the creation of the nation of Israel in 1947, you've got a group of people who put the Jewish people back on land that did not actually belong to them for a very long time. Yes, you can point back to the Promised Land Joshua and that sort of stuff, but you're talking about, I mean, easily 1800 years where the Jewish people were not there. And then the powerful elites carved out a portion of land and said, now that belongs to you because God meant you to be there is in a humane sense problematic. Now, I think if you talk to almost any Jewish person, because almost every Jewish person I know, um, will absolutely hearken back to this intention of God that the people be there in this land. For Christians, to be honest, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because theologically speaking, place is not as important to us. We are a belief-based group. It doesn't really matter if we believe here or there or somewhere else, but for the Jews and for Muslims, place matters in a very significant way. And so being in that actual place changes their identity and they, I think they would say for the good. But it is appropriate for us to struggle with the reality of people being put off their land. Or as we will see in, actually we're not going to see, as you would see if you read Joshua and beyond, 
it's genocide. I mean, it's just slaughter. And how do you reconcile that? It's, it's hard. It's very hard. Oh yeah, nobody's, I mean, there has to be an exception to this rule, but I think if you look at any people anywhere, they are not the first people to be on the land that they're on. I bet you there are some exceptions in places like in the Amazon, or maybe in a few Asian, very remote Asian areas, or places like that, um, where perhaps there is no record of anyone else ever being on that land besides the people who are there right now. But the majority of land in the world, absolutely. Someone else was there before the people who are there now. Just kind of the reality of, of the world. But it's worth wrestling with. This is not an easy answer. And in fact, I think that part of, part of why we can do this with integrity is because we are a people that don't actually need easy answers. And so engaging intellectually with this is totally safe and fine. And you're not judging anyone by asking good questions. We can still be kind and loving and also intellectually rigorous. And I think that that's part of what we're called to do. And so we in this room will not agree on all the finer points of any of these macro issues. It doesn't mean we can't sit and struggle together. I think that's what makes us good. We're better for struggling with each other. Did I see a hand right here? Yeah, Becky. Oh, yes. Okay, sorry. Um, Throughline is the name of the podcast. No, through. Like if you draw a through line, it's all historic. And so essentially they, they draw a through line over very complex historical issues. And so, for example, about, a, about what, a year ago now, um, whenever the whole like, disaster of withdrawing out of Afghanistan happened, there was a two-part about the history of Afghanistan. Absolutely fascinating. Um, these people are incredibly, when I say lucid, they do so much with such precision that you can only spend, say, 30 or 40 minutes, and it's massive helpful. And so that's, and it's one of those NPR podcasts. Um, it's very easy to find. And Bob, why don't you make a note? We can add that to the, the email just as a, as a link. I'm a big, I love podcasts. Um, if podcasts are not part of your life, then you might just resist it now because it's like a black hole. It sucks me in. Um, they're fantastic. So we'll end with that, and I will see you next week as we continue numbers. Thanks for being here. Bye, everybody.